What does the term racialized trauma mean? To find out, KBCS's Kevin Henry caught up with psychotherapist Joshua Megianis to get the clinical perspective. Well, thanks for being here today. And let, let's just start off by, I guess, defining what racial trauma is. I mean, it's one of those terms that people in the field kind of know what it is and, and can talk about it for a long time. But for some people, it's kind of a new term. And sometimes people are surprised when maybe they're trying to help someone or they send an email and the person says, hey, I was triggered by that. And the person that sent it is going, well, what are you talking about? I'm, you know, I'm just trying to help you or, or just send something I thought you might be interested in. But let's just talk about what, what's the definition of racial trauma in, according, to, according to you? Sure. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. And you're right. You know, I mean, I think and it's, it's, it's a newer term, um, which I'm excited about, you know, that people are at least acknowledging that this is something that is real and that happens on a day-to-day basis. And we're giving name and, and um, you know, calling it out. But racialized trauma is race-based uh, traumatic stress. Um, and it's this accumulation of effects of racism on individuals' mental and physical health. So if I'm triggered by something um, that is race-based, whether it's in direct contact of or secondary contact, right? I am being triggered by this racialized event. Therefore, my anxiety is being pushed. Um, depression is probably gonna be engaged. And also my physical health, right? We see um, especially when we talk about transgenerational oppression, transgenerational racism, we wonder like, how come I'm having these physical health issues and, and where does this come from? And that's where it stems from. Uh, other folks probably have heard it called RBTS or race-based traumatic stress, very similar to PTSD. And uh, like I said, I, you know, it's, it's very real. Um, you know, when folks are discriminated uh, against or are just even exposed to it. Um, and, and many times when it's chronic, that's when it's at its, its worst. Um, prior to this, and I think what folks really could probably um, hang their hats on or uh, really gravitate and kind of understand in a little better sense is when we talk about racial microaggressions, right? When those events happen and we ask ourselves things like, did that really just get mentioned? Was I, was I just told that as a Latino male, I speak eloquently or I seem so intelligent? And so I start to personalize and my narration is that, that I am not able to be at a certain level. And so I am triggered in some way and it manifests very differently for very different people. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what are, I mean, you mentioned physical, mental, emotional um, and then you mentioned, let's, let's go back for a second. You mentioned, uh, was it transgenerational? Yeah. Maybe you could uh, expand on that a little bit and explain what that means. Most definitely. You know, when we think about transgenerational oppression and racism, right, these are events that happened even well before us. So now we're getting into some of our ancestral work and the history that has come before us. And so, you know, showing up today as Joshua in 2020, I'm bringing along my ancestors' history, their experience, and what they've carried with. And the way it gets to me is by story, right? Who narrated the way that they were supposed to be 
in their time. Many times we also think about this in slavery times when folks um, were held, right, beyond their, um, them uh, being able to, uh, how do I want to say this, uh, without their approval. And, um, and, and, and that travels throughout. I can remember my father talking about his mom working in the cotton fields and she was pulling him along and he was a young child um, and, and him remembering that. And so acknowledging that his mother working in the cotton fields and having to be there so early in the morning and leaving very late and as a young child acknowledging that that's what work was and so as it translates into even us, as we were younger, work meant you get up early, you get moving, and you don't stop till the job's done. That's how it's ingrained. And, and, and the narration really um, sticks with us or stays with us for years beyond our ancestors had left. That's very interesting because when you said that, it reminded me of when I grew up. I grew up in Los Angeles. You know, I'm like 9, 10, 11 years old in the late 60s. And I remember my parents who, who were from the South, who had grown up in segregation, grown up when the racism was really thick and really blatant in their lives, would tell these stories. And they would, it wasn't like they were telling me how I should behave, but they were like, almost like kind of warning me, even about white people, you know, especially Southern white people. So whenever I would get around white people, it was, it was like my antenna would go up, like I was, my, you know, my anxiety level would go up a little bit because it was almost like I was expecting them to say something, behave in a certain way or treat me differently. And then when it would actually happen, it would intensify that. So I always felt like I was kind of carrying, carrying that around with me. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yes. In fact, that's our exposure early on to racial or ethnic stereotypes, right? When we talk about stereotype threat, that's what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about these narratives that were told about us, right? And, and weren't given to us by our own communities, our own cultures. It was other folks from other races, predominantly the white culture, right? And um, telling us how we should be in the world and how we should be in the United States. And so my dad understanding like this is where he belongs. Right. And so if he somehow makes it out of that field worker mentality, that he has somehow uh, changed the cycle. Right. Um, and, and as we start to change that cycle, which is really what you're talking about, I think, too, and and is now waking some things up in me, is that we do carry that sense of guilt with us as well. Right. Um, that now that I have this degree and this new attained privilege, did I leave my cultural roots? Have I, have I looked the other way? And, and that's how this idea around stereotype threat and this exposure to um, racial or ethnic uh, stereotype um, really informs how we're gonna move through. And, and for some of us, it's, it's uh, between the, uh, a matter of life and death, um, people's personal safety. So I remember hearing stories growing up, like make sure you lock your doors if you're in a certain neighborhood, right? And as a, a brown male, as a Latino, Latinx individual hearing that, I remember a question like, why, what, what, like, what does that mean? And those were early messages, right? Racialized, discriminatized messages that 
my parents heard from somewhere, right, that was passed on to them, that then passed on to me. And, you know, as we ingrain those, or as we um, uh, intertwine those with the way we live now, wow, like, how can I not go through a bad neighborhood and not think back to whose voice was that? How come I heard that? And do I still believe those things? Um, you know, it's interesting because now as an adult uh, living in the city, sometimes I, I, I won't lock my apartment door or my condo door just because I, you know, it's that, that's not something that, um, that moves me or triggers me. However, in the academic setting, when I'm around my colleagues who are white identified, um, don't look like me. And even sometimes I think even as individuals of color, we do kind of size each other up, hoping that we're either going to be on each other's side or who's going to be the one to speak up first. And so, I mean, the heart starts to race and the hands start to sweat, but that's also our way to defend against this racialized trauma and the stress that is taking over our body physically. So it's like a it's like adapting, and you had mentioned microaggressions, which I want to get into in a second, and then also code switching, you know, which is something that um, when somebody first brought that term to my attention, talking about you know how we it's not like we become phony or we're being pretentious, but it's almost like uh, I compare it to if I see a person at work every day, there it's I'm seeing a certain side of them. If I see them at the basketball court playing hoops. All right. of a sudden, they're swearing and acting very raucous. I'm going, wow, you know, look at Joshua. I never knew he was like that. That's still a part of who you are. But we're mm -hmm. constantly kind of adapting. And I've heard black people even say that, you know, I'm the only black person in the office. So I'm always like careful of like not being too loud or not right. being too aggressive um, because I don't want to intimidate people or I don't want to come off as the angry black man or the angry black woman. And, and so we talked about code switching and almost like a, you know, we're, we're chameleons in a way, you know, adapting to all these different social and professional situations. Do, do you equate that with, you know, racialized trauma as well and, and having a kind of a negative effect on us? Most definitely. And, you know, when we start to deny that this is happening, it really intensifies this level of stress, right? Because what we're saying is, no, this can't be true. This is not happening. This is not how I, sh I should be reacting. But in fact, we are reacting and we are trying to um, figure out how do we navigate for our safety, right? For um, whatever way possible, we can get through the difficult time or challenge or experience. Um, whether it's shopping downtown at Nordstrom and walking through the store with maybe a hoodie or sweats on and hoping, well, I hope I don't get followed around the store this time, right? Or if I am, what does that mean? And so we're constantly, and you use the word code switching, um, oftentimes I think I'll use the word style flexing. It's the same type of uh, way of thinking that we have to figure out the best way to get through a situation while defending our personal self, while keeping ourselves safe. Um, because we have heard stories as, as, as brown men of color, black men of color um, in this country and female identified uh, uh, women of color, right? We do have to take that added precaution. And, and it's sad, it's challenging because to be able to walk through a day in the life and not have to worry 
I, I don't even know what that looks like or feels like. And many yeah, of my I colleagues. Mean, I, I, I think it's very easy to almost like get disconnected with, with even who you are at times because either you're, you've kind of numbed out or you, you, buried yourself in the in the code switching so much it's like well who the heck am i anymore and then you mentioned microaggressions which i wanted to touch on briefly because people you know it's another term that some people are really familiar with and other people are like well what's that uh, how would you define a microaggression uh in the in the way i like to uh describe it or define it uh, especially for my students is when somebody makes that undertoned uh, comment that um, or even that action or behavior that puts up this interesting guard within us, right? Um, I was on uh, here in Seattle, I was riding the, um, the train, right? And going into downtown, I used to live in Columbia City. And when I sat down, I sat down and there were individuals who I didn't, who I assumed identified possibly as white. And I sat down and they had a child with them. And when I sat, they kind of scrunched together a little bit closer, mm -hmm. right? And I'm not wearing a suit. I'm wearing, you know, leisure clothes. It's the weekend. I, you know, I'm not going to go present anywhere. And in that moment, I, I was trying to figure out what the feeling was that I was going through and what the experience was for me. And I couldn't understand how come I was so anxious and how come I was so frustrated. And then as I got off the train, right, um, I was frustrated and angry. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I, I think it's like you mentioned earlier, sometimes it's like I've had this happen where I walk out of a room and I kind of go, now was that just, were they being racist or were they just, you know, saying something that I'm interpreting as, as being racist. And another example I'll give you is with all the stuff going on with, with, uh, you know, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the protests and the civil unrest and, and the, the general kind of upsurge, of racism in the country and as, as well as uh, the uh, tension. Sometimes I'll go online and one of the local ra uh, TV stations, I won't mention which one here has a, uh, has like a Facebook feed. So if they post a story and a lot of times it's live coverage or something, you have the comment section. So I will read the comments and I would say for this one particular station about 80% of the comments are these kind of covert, negative, snarky comments um, that have that racial kind of overtone to it. So you see the protesters, you know, many, you'll see many black people protesting or talking about Breonna Taylor. And so there's comments like, well, you know, I guess when you're on welfare, you have time to go out and protest. Right. You know, those kind of little comments where somebody could easily say, oh, I was just talking about people on welfare. I wasn't making it a racial thing. But there's so much of that indirect, passive aggressive mm -hmm. kind of thing that I mm -hmm. think it just, like you say, it creates that kind of tension in the body. You can feel your hands, you know, starting to sweat and your heart right. racing a little bit. Right. So let's go to healing, because you work with clients who are um, dealing with different types of trauma, right. whether it be sexual identity, as you mentioned, or, or racial. 
maybe you could just describe or give a couple of examples of working with clients and who come into your office and how you deal with that. Yeah. You know, and, and I appreciate you talking about the covert aspect because that's what really sticks with us. And so when many of my clients do come in, especially my, my clients of color, right, that's what they're explaining. They're also explaining their perception. And what we have to remember, especially about racial microaggressions and racialized trauma, is that it's about our experience, right? And, and for me to take that away from my clients and say that that's not true, it can't be, you work for an amazing organization, it's well known in the city, and they do great things for the community, is like me saying it didn't really happen. And so we do the adverse, right? I, I invite that in and we talk about how real that is and you know what the intention right, of that comment, that situation, that behavior is versus the consequence because we're on that receiving end of the consequence, right? We have to go home and then work through and filter through what it is that we heard, we saw, or even felt um, during those situations. And many of my clients come from some of the uh, more bigger companies here in the Pacific Northwest and beyond. And, you know, talking about, you know, how real it is for them and where else in their life have they felt that? Have they experienced that? And also, I think this is like one of the biggest questions that I do ask many of my clients is, what are some of the narratives or stories or pieces of advice your parents gave you growing up about race, about how to show up as a person of color in today's society? And if they haven't, have you ever wondered how come? And if they haven't had that conversation, what has typically come out of our sessions is uh, parents wanted to protect us, right? I, I think about my language, uh, mother tongue, right? Um, I, I don't speak Apache, but I have Apache um, blood and also Spanish, right? And so, and my Mexican side, but like thinking back to how come the language wasn't taught to me, right? Well, my parents wanted to save me in the educational system. Now, huh, would that be their choice? Or was that somebody else's decision that they made for my parents? And so we talk about that at length and talk about the healing and how important it is to embrace all the parts of us, right, um, that we bring forward and to really celebrate that. And it's tough to do that now. I think people, because of fear, right, um, we've talked about safety, um, depending geographically, that's also going to show up very differently. I talk about Seattle being very utopic, right? Where folks show up in the front stage real down. And uh, if we want to use woke or whatever, um, they seem that way, but then behind the scenes or backstage, right? They're really showing up in a different way and folks really aren't bringing their true self forward. And so now we're left to hold the bag. We're left to kind of make sense of all of it and, and try to navigate a life that we hope can be as positive and healthy as it possibly can. Well, and, and you mentioned the word protecting. And I've had this discussion with some people about protecting children from the harsh realities of, of racism, whether the child is a, a child of color or let's just say a white child. Because I've seen some white parents that their kids, you know, I don't know, nine, 10 years old, 
turn the TV on and they see people protesting, they see, you know, people being, you know, brutalized, they see cars on fire, they see looting, and it's like, mom, dad, what, what is this? Oh, change the channel. Let's not talk about that. Right. You know, and they think they're protecting their child. But to me, it's like a lot of things, like sex education or any number of mm -hmm. things. <laughs> the more they know, and if you as a parent or as a caregiver or yeah. friend or whatever can help them and guide them through those conversations, because they're going to find out one way or another. Right. You know, or they're going to be left to, to make sense of it on their own, what racism right. is or what sexism is or homophobia or any number of things. So, and then for the child of, of, of color, protecting them. And I've seen this happen with adopted kids in particular, where yeah. it's like, we just want this, this child to be part of our family. And it might be like white parents adopting black children, for instance. Huh. So we don't want to expose them or let them know about racism or whatever. We just want to love them for who they are, which, which, you know, on one level is great. But on the other level, what happens when they're older and they're called a name once they're a, a teenager and they go, well, where'd that come from? So what would you say to parents or friends? How do you support them, make them aware of the racism and the reality without traumatizing them? <laughs> Easy uh, question. Huh? No, I, you know, and that's that's a big that's like the. I was going to say, or maybe five years ago or 10 would have said, that's the $80,000 question. Today, I'm pretty firm in that. Uh, I think it's naive or ignorant for us to not have that conversation. Um, racism has been around and is uh, well and live. And um, I think we're doing our youth a disservice by not having real conversations about it and, and talking about what the protests mean. Why are folks marching? What are the rights that are, are at stake? you know, and, and how are people truly treated in this wonderful country we call the United States of America, right? And really move from uh, protection to like, let's go into the decolonization. Let's talk about what that means. Let's talk about how this country was um, built and, and uh, uh, oh gosh, what is the term? I'm, it's, I'm losing it right now democratize, right? Let's, let's change our classrooms and how we show up and how we show up at the workplace and talk about things in a way that is culturally responsive and be responsible and not irresponsible. Um, for me as a therapist, and in my opinion, it would be very irresponsible for me to let those situations, let those conversations fly by unannounced, untalked about, and, and to give them space and voice um, and to really be loud about it. I think as uh, you mentioned, the civil unrest and, uh, and, and the folks whose lives were taken um, and, and, and brutally taken um, to, to really go into that space and to talk about the realities of it and how they affect all of us really. Um, and, and not just to read books and not just to watch videos, um, but instead to move away from that uh, book club mentality, but having some real discourse, having some conversation about what is real and what is not. And I mean, we can walk down any street in Seattle and I guarantee you we can pick out multiple ways in which our wonderful city is racist still. Uh, we can look at media uh, on, through video, books, magazines, the TV, uh, who's shown and who isn't, and in what light are they shown? And that's very important. In fact, that's one of the exercises I give 
folks who have a hard time trying to figure out like what is emotion and what does emotion look like, right? Most of our males of color, we shy away from anger because we were told don't go into that behavior and don't go into it because it's scary and you're not seen as somebody as positive. And right, what I like to do is reverse that and have males in particular look at like how we can embrace our anger and behave in a different way. What does it look like on TV? And so their homework is watch a show. How does anger show up? How does joy show up? And really name it. But I think we have to have those conversations and, you know, be active in our communities and find supportive communities who, who are jumping on board with what we believe, right? And a lot of this work comes at a major risk and a cost. And sometimes we have to lose things. Sometimes we lose people, um, in particular, family members and friends who just don't get it. Well, and so last question sure. with all of that. Given everything we've talked about, this mountain of information, how do you practice self-care? You know, I mean, as a therapist, you're sitting there absorbing a lot of this emotion and conflict and angst and everything else. Um, how do you take care of yourself? Yeah. Um, you know, I think, <laughs> I, as I was going to start, I was going to say exercise. And that's true, right? And I think that's important and healthy diet, etc., but also acknowledging what I endured during the day, giving it some space. Many of us want to just push it off and say, you know what, that happened and, and, and I went through it and, and now let me just start with my evening. And instead, it really is embracing uh, the situations that went on throughout the day, acknowledging some of the experiences that my clients had, and maybe what kind of reactions came up in me, right? Many of my clients talk about heavy things that I've also endured and I'm seeing come down, right? Like the journey before my client gets there. And so I already know where we're going. So for me, uh, self-care is doing that. And also acknowledging that at the end of the day, like I have to walk through life too, just as my clients do. And so it's important for me to separate that. And I can't change and fix the entire world, but if I can start with one person, maybe it's a friend or family member, or just being there and hearing and seeing my clients, then I'm doing my part for the better whole. And so if people want more information uh, about you or your, your practice, you have a website or information you could just share with us. I do. Um, yeah, folks, please reach out to me. Um, uh, you, my website is uh, joshuatherapy.com. So it's simple. It's my first name and therapy.com. Or you can email me at jmagayanis. J-M-A-G-A-L-L-A-N-E-S at joshuatherapy.com. And I would love to engage in conversation uh, or even provide referrals. Right now, we are in need of more folks who look like me to be in our field um, therapeutically. Um, and a lot of folks um, uh, just looking for, for help and, and support and um, and folks who are willing to serve, so. All right, okay, well, thank you. That was 91.3's Kevin Henry speaking with psychotherapist Joshua Megianis about the clinical perspective of racialized trauma.
These interviews are made possible thanks to listeners like you. You can find this interview and more interviews like it at kbcs.fm or anywhere you can find podcasts.